Amen. Thank you, Jesse. All right. Um, so no long introduction this morning because we've got a lot of text to cover. So we're going to cover all of chapter 7. Yes, I can do an entire chapter, I hope. Um, but this particular chapter, this particular poem um, is laid out as a, a kind of narrated drama. So you've got, again, the father speaking to the son and him kind of giving this, this picture of what he sees as he surveys the world. So we're going to do something a little bit different this morning, and um, normally we will dive deep into each verse, and we just we can't possibly, but I want you to see the flow of this poem. So we're going to zoom out a little bit, and because much of it is, is repetitive, there's, there's, uh, most of the verses are, are couplets, meaning they are two lines that relate to one another, so we'll deal with them as a whole. Um, and you've seen your outlines, I've done six uh, units that will deal with each of these units and pull out some of the details in, in each. Um, so moving from the words of wisdom through all these works of the woman to the words of warning. Uh, probably another warning here. This is another one of those passages um, where some people are like, I can't believe that this is in the Bible. Uh, so this is very vivid and this is very graphic and the details here um, are not all the uh, nice Sunday school stories that, that you're used to. If you've only ever heard those stories, uh, those are good too. But we need the warnings. Why do we need warnings like are here in this passage? Because every day we go out and the world has plenty to say about sex. And the world is as loud and as bold and as persuasive as the woman in this passage. And so if we think we can kind of check our box off by being in church on Sunday morning and then I'm, I'm going to have this, this invincibility shield and be covered from all this temptation for the rest of the week, you are sadly mistaken. And so that's why we are digging into this. And it's a lesson against adultery, which applies to every other type of temptation as well. All right, so let's jump right in. We're in Proverbs chapter 7. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then uh, we will walk through it together. The father says, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, a woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I paid my vows, so now I have come to meet you. To seek you eagerly, I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him at full moon. He will come home. And with much seductive speech, she, persuaded, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. 
As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to my words. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you bring about your purpose through your word, that your spirit would teach us and guide us, instruct us where needed, convict us where needed, that we would be reminded of our sin and our own waywardness, that we would run to our Savior, the only faithful husband. Even though we have been a faithless bride, he welcomes us and brings us into his fold, cares for us, covers our shame and our nakedness because our trust is in him. Lord, I pray that your word this morning would search the depths of our very hearts. Every one of us in this room has sins we think we can hide from you. Every one of us in this room is drawn to temptations that hopefully we hate and make us miserable. But there are some in this room who are drawn drawn into temptation and they love it. Lord, will you make our temptation and our sin be a bitter taste in our mouth this morning? May we be drawn to you. May we cry out to you. May we be like these sons and listen to the Father keeping and protecting our heart from its desires of the flesh that lead to death. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So hopefully you can see as I read through chapter 7, I think by by breaking it up you lose its force. So that's why we're covering the entire chapter this morning. And with the introduction, it's very similar to last week. So if you were here last week in chapter 6, you look at the first few verses, chapter 6, 20 through uh, 24, the same kind of structure, keeping commandments, binding them, tying them, walking them, uh, walking in them, and uh, preserving life. So you get the same purpose in each. So verse 5 of chapter 7, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress and her smooth words, same purpose from last week. Verse 24 of chapter 6, to preserve you from the eagle woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Father has the same aim in both of these, yet this time he decides to tell a story. All right, son, in case you missed all of my previous warnings, now I'm going to lay this out for you in what happens every day on the streets of our own town. So a few things I want to bring to your mind in this this section. My son, keep my words. Notice how how often keep is used here. It's the same Hebrew word for guard. So when you see keep, it is a treasure, something that is valuable that needs to be guarded. But it is also a teacher, something that needs to be obeyed, something that needs to be guarded and something that needs to be obeyed. My son, keep my words, treasure up my commandments. We saw last week how the words of the father, the commandments of the father are synonymous with the word and the commandments of God. Follow and obey the commandments of God so that you'll, you'll be kept. If you keep these, you'll be kept from the forbidden woman. Uh, that language is there intentionally. 
He said, if you keep these commandments and live and keep my teaching is the apple of your eye. Uh, fun fact, there were not apples in ancient Israel. This is Tyndale's language. Tyndale wanted the, 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 the average um, worker in, in Europe to have an idea of how valuable should this be, like how beautiful should this be. So the Hebrew word here is, is pupil. We don't know exactly what, what their, their intention was, but a pupil is necessary to see, but it's also something near and dear to you. Without it, you, you, you can't see. And so there's this, there's this, this close, intimate nature of keeping this as the apple of your eye. As much as you need your people to see, you need um, the, the word and the commandments of God to see the, the world. And so that was the picture that Tyndale painted, and uh, we're still walking, we're, we're still using that today. The other thing we saw last week is the binding and the writing. This idea that if you bind something on your finger or around your wrist, you don't leave home without it. This is like your little medical alert, uh, alert bracelet, like you don't want to leave home without it or whatever else you need, but even more so. Because every time you look at this string around your finger, every time you look at this, this reminder around your, your, your wrist, I need the commandments of God because I'm walking in a dark world. Not just externally. It's not just some moralistic thing that you put on on the outside. What is most important is that you write it on the tablet of your heart. What we've seen so far in Proverbs and all throughout the scriptures is what flows out of the heart defines the person. It is the, the, the fountain of who we are. We are not outside in people. What we do and look like on the outside does not define us on the inside. But biblically, who we are on the inside, where our heart is, that defines everything else in our lives. That will prove who we really are. And so when you write something on the tablet of your heart, you are impressing it upon your very identity, your very nature. You take it everywhere with you. It is a part of who you are. You can't eat, sleep, breathe, or do anything without it. Um, I like what um, Charles Bridges says here in his commentary. He says, write it safely on your heart, not safely on your shelves. This idea that... Um, this is a, a true story, my neighbor who I've been witnessing to for a, a while. Um, I keep asking him to read the Bible with me. He said, I, he keeps telling me he has a Bible. He's very proud that he has a Bible. Saw him the other day. He literally said, hey, I took my Bible out the other day. I was like, did you read it? Well, I took it out. <laughs> that is not what is going on here. That, this is a direct conversation. Write it on the tablet of your heart. Don't just keep it safely inside you, not just safely on the shelf. I know people who've got a family Bible. It is open, and they, they, they walk by, and they do the sign of the cross, and they just walk by something holy yet never bother to read it. This is the opposite of what the Father's saying. Read it. Keep it. Guard it. It is, it is a treasure. It is to be obeyed because it will keep you from stumbling. All right, so let's move on to our next section here. So in the next section, beginning in verse 6, 4, here comes the storytelling time. This is the father who is looking out his, his window. He's kind of surveying the world. Um, notice the details here. For I look out the window of my house, and I've looked through my lattice. All these repetition um, terms for seeing, perceiving. First thing I want you to get is the father's house is a house of wisdom. What does the father do? He's inside the house, and he thinks soberly, and he thinks clearly. He looks out the window. He surveys what's going on in the world and he learns from it. This will contrast the woman's house where we end. We begin at the father's house. We end at the woman's house. 
For the window of my house, I've looked through my lattice. I've seen among the simple. We saw this earlier in Proverbs. Simple just means immature. Among the simple and among the young. These are kind of synonymous. Um, but the simple don't have to be young. There are old, simple people. Uh, and the writer of Proverbs says, Oh, you simple ones, how long will you be content in your immaturity? So the father sees the simple. He sees the young and he's kind of surveying everything, and then right in the center, this is perfectly in the center of six through nine, there is a young man lacking sense. All of our attention is drawn to this. There is a young man lacking sense. He is the dullest knife in the drawer. This is the most simple of the simple. Bruce Bruce Waltke calls him the gullible dimwit. That's this guy. So here's what the father's doing. As I was thinking about this, have you ever watched a spider spin its web? You ever like just sat and watched creation? It is fascinating. Spiders spinning a web and they've, they've got this intricate, um, perfectly symmetrical um, trap of destruction. And then, anyone ever done this besides me? But you ever seen a fly? You watch that like spider web and the flies, from, and this dumb fly is bouncing into windows and walls and you know it is only a matter of time before he gets into this web. This is what the father's looking at. He's looking out his window and he's like, I see the web, I see the fly, it's only a matter of time. Um, just because I like to research weird things, uh, I thought of a Venus flytrap. And so Venus flytraps are fascinating. Um, they, they, they secrete nectar. So this, this sweet-smelling nectar that, 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 that comes up from the uh, pads that are um, in between all of its teeth or whatever you want to call them. And the flies and the bugs, they, they, they smell this, this nectar. It draws them from all over. You can keep these in your house to keep down flies. It's a cool idea. Um, but it, it, uh, it uh, brings them in, and their, their uh, desire to eat, their desire to be satisfied draws them, draws them in. And it's interesting that the Venus flytrap will not slap on the first hit. It will have to be touched twice within, within 20 seconds. So what happens with these flies, they come in for a little bit, just a little nibble. They uh, fly back around. Oh, this is pretty good. Nothing happened to me. So I'm going to go back and do it again. The second time that they come, they're dead. And they, it's, gr- it's gross, but they just dissolve them uh, and suck out all the juices in their body. But, yeah, this is what the father's seeing. This dumb fly, this gullible dimwit, of all the young and simple people, that's the one. That's the one that the spider's going to get. That's the one that the Venus flytrap is, is going to get. What's even worse about um, this particular situation is um, that. All right, I'm not there yet. I got a little ahead of myself. All right, I, I want you to watch about uh, this, this kind of fly. So every time I see this, I see the fly now. So him passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. This is a progression. He starts on the street. He gets to the corner. He gets to her house. He gets closer and closer. He's kind of stumbling through. And he proves his, his, his lack of sense because he's kind of like wandering around the city. I know where she lives. It's over there. I'm getting a little closer and a little closer and a little closer. And isn't this the way we approach sin? We don't just land on the door of sin. We go willingly, one foot in front of the other, little by little. I can get closer. 
I got in her street, nothing happened. I got to her corner, nothing happened. I got to her door, nothing happened. I'll be fine. We can turn away at, every, at any time, but we do it one foot in front of the other. And so there's this, this progression. First thing I want you to notice, this guy's got way too much time. This is, what, this is what happens with idleness. If you've got nothing better to do and to see if the, the a pretty married woman down the, down the street is, is home, you got a problem. Young men, this is why you need to be working. You need to be busy uh, because we all know we get in trouble. We have too much time on our hands. So this is not just that he has too much time, but it's the time that he has on his hands. Look when he does it. This is also a, a progression. So in the Hebrew, this is like in the twilight and then in the evening and then in the, in the time of night and in, in darkness. This is his, his slow progression down into death. He starts in the light of day and he's waiting for the sun to go down. He's waiting for it to get a little bit darker. Then when it's completely pitch black and no one can see, that's when he approaches her house. This is very willful and intentional. This also is like our temptation. Because we don't fall into temptation when it's in the middle of the day, when there are plenty of people around us who actually care enough about us to bring this to our attention. When do we fall into temptation? When we let it get a little bit darker and a little bit darker. We wait till we're by ourselves, and we let our minds and our flesh bring us. I, you know, I can fly right into this, this uh, spider's web, and nothing will happen. I can come and drink again from the, the, the nectar of the Venus flytrap, and nothing will happen. And he's got this slow drift. So the first point of application I want to draw in here is from 1 John 1. The contrast between the people of the world and the people of God. And so John's first epistle is a great reminder to the church. It's a great litmus test. So are you walking with the Lord? Are you walking according to the world? Notice the uh, contrast here. What marks the man in Proverbs should not mark the people of God. Verse 5 of chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness. You cannot walk in darkness and walk in light. You can't walk one foot in the shadow and one foot in the sunshine. It doesn't work that way. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. And so do you look more like this man, creeping around by himself, by corners? You may not do this literally, but we all do this in our minds. We all do this in our, in, in our heart as we approach our sin. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We are great at being liars. We are great at being hypocrites. We are great at showing up on Sunday morning and saying, yeah, everything's great. How are you? Fantastic. Lying through your teeth. Because every one of us, every week, struggles with our temptation to walk in the darkness. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's the beauty of the gospel. If you walk in the light, you have fellowship with one another. There are other people of the light. How do we stop from going to the, the home of, of the adulteress? You be around other believers. Many of you think, well, I can just kind of hug the church on, on, a, on a Sunday morning and I'll be protected for the rest of the week. How's that working out for you? How's that working out? How many of you have no one in your life right now that, that you can call if you, if you are struggling, if you are hurting, if you are, if you are tempted? And you feel like, I am dark and I am, I am alone. 
That is not the Christian life. If we truly walk in daylight, we have fellowship with one another. We, have, we are people of the day. Why? Because the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin. How can we walk in the light? Because he stood in our place. Because he took our sin. Because his blood covers us. And so therefore, the darkness that took over the entire world when he breathed his last on the cross, will no longer take over us because he took the darkness upon himself. He rose again in light to new life so that we would walk in life. But this is the struggle of the Christian life, if indeed you are in Christ. You know what it means to walk in the light, but the darkness is so tempting. The darkness is so easy to slip back into. And if there are some of you sitting here this morning saying, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not walking in the darkness. Yeah, I kind of do my own thing once in a while. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you're sitting here this morning, you're a sinner. Join the club. And if you're sitting here this morning saying, no, I'm not, you're a liar. Join that club. But what's the answer? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the connection here. How we walk in our lives is, is a direct outpouring of whether we have been forgiven of our sins or not. And what Christ has done for us changes our heart, but it changes all of our actions. And we have a God who is faithful and just to forgive sins. Many of you in this room think, there is no way I could be forgiven. I have done way too much. How could God ever forgive someone like me? Because he forgave someone like me. And he forgave someone like Brett. And he forgave someone like Noah. And we can go down and down and down and down the list. Because all of our sins are ugly and horrible, and we're going to get to them in just a moment. But our God is faithful. Our God forgives, and you can walk in light. You don't have to walk in darkness, but you must repent. You can't say, I want this uh, Jesus thing, but I want my sins too. Makes you a liar. But he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Because his word, his law tells us you have sinned. Here's my standard, perfection. Here's my standard, complete holiness, complete righteousness. Can you meet that? If you can't, you're a sinner and a liar. All right, let's move on. All right, so we've covered the light and, and, and the darkness, and now we get to the action. And behold, verse 10, back in Proverbs 7, the father's saying, look, the woman meets him, behold, Look at all the brash, aggressive language today, or language here. She's dressed as a prostitute. She's loud and she's wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now she's in the street. Now she's at the market. Uh, every corner she seizes him. She kisses him. Is this not sin today? Right in your face. I am loud. I am brash. See me. You can't avoid me. I will hunt you down. Any of this sound familiar? When I, when I read this, it is like, Everything that is, that, that is aimed at us, do this, indulge your, yourself, follow me. But what's even worse about this than the spider web or any of that, he doesn't have to go, he, he makes his way to her, but she reaches out and grabs him. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, grabs him. Now, this dress as a prostitute, uh, this is dress to kill. 
You know what's really scandalous about this? This is a married woman. Why would a married woman dress as if she's selling herself for money? Does this not sound like today's marketing? Women, if you dress like this, you will get these, these, these things. Want, want your guy to pay attention to you? Dress like this. This is what the world is, is selling, and this is so scandalous, especially in, in this day, because modesty was held very high. So for a married woman to do this, this is extremely, all of these things are extremely scandalous. She's dressed as a prostitute. She is widely of heart. The uh, Septuagint translation here I think is helpful. She causes the hearts of young men to flutter. She is, she is cunning in her heart. Notice the contrast. Father says, son, write these things on your heart. Why? Because you're going to meet a woman out there. You're going to meet sinful temptation out there that is cunning in its heart. It's, it's desire, it, your desire needs to be for the word because its desire is for you. And she is loud and she is wayward. She is bold and she is defiant and she is in your face. Don't you think you can walk past me? Don't you think that you are too strong for me? And then here's something that we don't think much of. But it says that her feet do not stay at home. In that culture, it would be scandalous for a woman to leave the house on her own, especially at night. Be walking in kind of less than savory areas. She doesn't care for her home, as we'll see later. She only cares for her own gratification. And just like sin, just like every temptation, um, this is not just one woman in mind, but there, this is a, a caricature. Because she can't be omnipresent, but temptation is. In the street, in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. This is sin and temptation at every corner. And sometimes it's subtle, but sometimes it's bold. You guys remember the, the, the Ashley Madison scandal a few years back? Have an affair. They took out billboards. And this, this was a national promotion. Have an adulterous affair against your wife. And many men in the church got caught up in this. She was loud and she was brash and she was in your face. Don't think this is just some archaic writing that this doesn't happen anymore. Hopefully you don't because you live in the same world I do. Sin has this insatiable appetite ready to pounce at any time. And what is she hungry for? What is sin hungry for? You. And she's going to weave her web in these next few verses. So she, she seizes him and she kisses him. This is a black widow. Come Mate with me and die. It's so good, you don't have to live afterward. This is very appealing to men. Let's be honest. We are often simple, curious creatures. And it is hard for us to turn down temptation that is this blatant. But this is also a warning to women. This is what the culture perpetuates. Flaunt what you've got. If you want something, take it and grab it. Make it yours. Don't, don't wait for someone else to come to you, right? We've got to be careful that this is not what we're looking at for our example because we see what's going on under the surface. This is not beautiful femininity. This is, this is ugly manipulation. But now she begins her speech. This is the largest section of this poem. It's seven lines in the Hebrew. So it's a complete temptation. And notice it begins with I. She draws attention to herself. She is the appeal. I had to offer sacrifices, and today I paid my vows. Some of you read this and are like, this is strange. 
Because this is a married woman dressed like a prostitute. Why is she talking about sacrifices? She's pretending to be religious. Think about that. She is pretending to be observant. Know anyone like this? Yeah, I went to church. I prayed a prayer. Check my box. Me and the man upstairs, we've got an understanding going on. I know so many people who do this. I know so many people who say, yeah, of course I believe in Jesus. Oh, of course I go to the church. How often? How, how much do they know you? Well, me and, me and God, we have an understanding. That's what she's doing. I'm going to go and give a sacrifice. I'm going to go and pretend that I'm, that I'm honoring God. Because she likes a little idolatry with her adultery. This is the, 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 the height of, of blasphemy. You know what's interesting about this offering, specifically a, a peace offering? Is that you come and you bring an animal... And you put some on the altar to be burned, but you take most of it home. So she wants to prepare a feast for her lover. And first, she goes and gives a, gives a tithe, gives a portion to the Lord, and brings the rest back. So in this next line, when she said, I had to offer sacrifice, and today I paid my vows, so now I have come to meet you. Guess what? I got a feast for you. Notice three times here, she repeats you. So I've come out to meet you. To seek you eagerly. I have found you. What she's telling him is, you're special. There's nobody like you. Not even my husband is like you. I got the best cuts of meat for you. We're going to feast. And if that isn't enough, here's what she also has done. 16 and 17, I have. There's, here's the, the, the work that she's done in preparation. I have spread my couch with coverings. I have colored linens from Egyptian linen. It's not like you can go to Marshall's now and get some, some like cheap Egyptian cotton sheets. You had to get this shipped in from Egypt. This is a woman with expensive taste because most people lived on the equivalent of like burlap sacks that they would weave at, at home. She's putting together Egyptian linen. She has perfume on her bed, also very expensive. Myrrh, extremely expensive. Aloe and cinnamon were, were, were more common, but the, the, the idea here is I'm creating this expensive fantasy for you. I've got the food covered. I've got the room covered. You don't have to worry about anything. This is all for you. Indulge yourself. Isn't that what our flesh tells us? Isn't that what our enemy tells us? Guess what? You deserve this. Have a you day. Get everything that, that, that you want. Who cares if you cross the line a little bit? I've laid all this out for you. Now, in verse 18, the I turns into us. She brings him in. She draws him one step closer. Come, let us take our fill of love to morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. She says love twice. Remember in the last chapter, the delight and the love of this young man is to be for his wife. She wants, to stand, she wants him to stand in place of her husband, and she wants to stand in the place of his wife. This adulteress, this is why Sin is synonymous with adultery in the scriptures. I want to stand in the place of the husband. I want to be united to you. And she gives him the reason. She gives him the support in verse uh, 19. For my husband, the, the, the Hebrew is much more crass here. For the man is out of town. Could be man or husband. Either way. She didn't say my husband. The man, the husband is out of She won't even speak about him in a possessive way. For the man is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. We've got the place to ourselves. He took a bag of money, enough for him to be gone for a month. 
We can do this as much as you want for as long as you want. That's what she's saying. That is the temptation here. So her husband is out working and financing her expensive taste and this tryst she has with this man. But a true helper would care for her home. This is another indictment. She doesn't care that her husband's working. She doesn't care that she is, she is blowing the, the family home and the family resources on quick pleasure. But also this is the exact opposite of what Scripture says a woman should be. Let's go to Proverbs 31. Notice all the same details, but phrased in a different way. I want you to see the conver- er, contrast. If you're in Proverbs, go to the very last chapter, Proverbs 31. We're not going to read it all, but I want to bring a few verses to your attention. Proverbs 31, look at verse 17. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. This is a good thing. This is not like a CrossFit chick who can do, uh, you know, a hundred muscle-ups. This is a woman who is dressed in confidence in the Lord. This is a woman who, who dresses in a way that will not be influenced by the world, will not be drawn aside. Look at verse 20. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not indulging herself. She's caring for others. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She takes care of her own home before herself. She makes sure that everyone in her house is taken care of. She's not afraid of storms. She's not afraid of other things because she has thought it through. She clothes her family first, and then she makes, um, she, she makes coverings for herself. She's not flying in stuff from Egypt. She makes it herself. She's an, she's an industrious woman. And not to say that you can't buy things from Egypt. That's not the point. Um, the, the point is here that she's not dependent on other cultures. She's not looking to get the finest things from, from everywhere so she can fill her desire. She's not afraid of hard work. Her husband is, um, and her, her clothing is fine linen and, and, and purple. She dresses well. She looks good. But the very next line is not for some other man, for her husband. Her husband is known in the gates, and when he sits around the elders of the land, that means everybody else in town knows how upstanding he is and how upstanding she is. Going on, um, verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She's not worried about tomorrow. This is a confident woman. This is a woman who is, who is, who is deliberate and uh, put together, not just in her actions but in her speech. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness on her tongue. Notice the difference. The adulteress has smooth and persuasive words on her tongue. This woman speaks in wisdom. She's got kindness. She's teaching on her tongue, not a way to manipulate a man. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. That's what's going on in chapter 7. They both got way too much time on their hands. She cares for her home. She is a, a, a steward of what God has given her. It addresses the children in verse 28. Um, but look at verse 30. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Could there not be more difference between Proverbs 7 and Proverbs 31? This other woman trying to take advantage of her beauty, this woman realizing beauty fades. 
What, what is all that dressing like a prostitute going to do when you're 70? That's disgusting. <laughs> it fades. But the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I think there's a reason why all this talk about adultery and temptation in Proverbs ends on chapter 31. This is to show the contrast of everything that comes before. All right. So one of the things I want you to think about with this, femininity is a gift. Ladies, don't let the world diminish what God has has given you. You make things smell good and look good and taste good. Praise the Lord for that. God has given you beauty. God has given you strength in a way that, that, that men have. I see women take uh, pain and, and blood better than, than most men. Being hospitable and welcoming people into your home and making people feel, feel welcome. There's, there's a, a reason when we look to be hospitable in the church, we need a, a woman's touch. You don't want guys decorating the church. You don't. You'd have, you'd have like Rambo posters up or something. <laughs> Jesse said amen. This is a good thing to be a caring, nurturing, providing caretaker and helper is a beautiful thing. But what does the culture say? Modesty's old. Humility is, is, is outdated. You need to be bold. You need to be brash. You need to be like this woman. Take it for yourself. What a contrast to what God desires. And so we should have this in mind as the drama peaks. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. In her smooth talk, she compels him. Notice, the kiss isn't what gets him. It's her speech. She appeals to his ego. She, 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 she draws him in. The trap is sprung. The black widow is moving in to mate and kill her spouse. This made me think of Greek mythology. You ever heard of the sirens? The sirens in uh, Greek mythology, half women, um, half bird, flying creature. And they have the most beautiful song. But the song is so alluring that the sailors lose their sense. So they will, they will stand on the cliffs. And the sailors hear it and say, what is that? They stop steering, they stop thinking, and they bring the ship right into the cliffs. They, they crash and all die. And so this is, this is so famous in all of... Um, the, the uh, Greek mythology that, that many reference it. And love is a very compelling and confusing siren. Uh, one of my favorite instances is Odysseus. So Odysseus knows that it's the most beautiful song anyone would ever hear, but if you hear it, you will die. So this, th- this crafty guy, I want to hear it so much, I'm going to have all of my sailors plug their ears with wax, and I'm going to tie myself to the mast, but not. So, so I can't steer the ship into the rocks. How many men think we can do that? Well, everybody else, they need to plug their ears from this. They need to avert their eyes from this. I can restrain myself so I won't crash into the rocks. This siren, this loving lure of the world is also contrasted in 1 John. Look at 1 John. Now we're in chapter 2. This is a theme here, the world and the people of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Remember what her promises are. Come, fill yourself with love. We can enjoy love all day, quote, unquote. Love being this this short, 
emotional uh, romp with, with no lasting value. But look at the warning in 1 John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, all three of those are present in this story. The desires of the flesh, of course, the desires of the eyes, definitely, and the pride of life. She's appealing to his pride the whole time. This is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The Father is saying the same thing. If you do this, you will die. Those are people of death. That's how they walk. Walk in the way of life. We saw that contrast last week. But this is hard for our hearts because we love the things of the world. We love the things that are kind of dark and kind of scandalous. And we, 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 we love the things that appeal to our flesh and give us instant gratification. But it is just like the sirens. You can't love those things and not crash into the rocks. If this were a modern TV show at our place in Proverbs, this would be when the romantic music starts. This is when the slow motion adultery happens and everything is, is uh, drawn in. But this is not what happens here. This is not good. Give in to your, your, your heart and your passion of, and your uh, fleshly passions. Oblivious to all the consequences. The father's telling the son there are consequences. With her seductive speech, she draws him in. Verse 22, all at once he follows her. And how does he follow her? as an ox that goes to the slaughter. At this point, he's just a dumb animal. You know what they do to oxen? They put a ring in, in, in their nose, because it doesn't take much. This is what sin is, it's a ring in your nose. This ring in your nose, they can pull you around by it. Your little nose, you're being led by your nose, or maybe something else, will, 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 will pull you along, and there's nothing you can do. You, you, you allow sin to make you a slave. This oxen doesn't know if he's going to eat or if he's going to die. He walks in the direction the same way either way. This is how oblivious we are when we give into the, the passions of the word. Sure, the world, sure it feels good, but we don't know if we're going to eat or going to die. Let me tell you, you're going to die. Like an oxen, like a stag, like a bird. All of these examples are animals who are being hunted right up until the moment of slaughter. He's just moving one foot in front of the other, not thinking. Like this man wandering around as a fly seeking life. It begins with a kiss, but at the end it costs him his life. And so now here's our close. And now, O oh sons, listen to me. And be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. There's that appeal to the heart again. Do not stray into her paths, for many victims she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. All right, sons, you, you, you heard the story. You heard the cautionary tale. You heard the way of life last week in chapter 6. Now the way of death. Heed my words. Are you going to be wise or are you going to be a fool? Are you going to live or are you going to die? Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. The key, again, is the heart. You either have hidden law or hidden lust in your heart. Which one is it? The worst advice the world tells us is follow your heart. Do not follow your heart. Guard your heart. Don't let your heart lead you to destruction like you've got a ring in your nose and you're just an ox ready for the slaughter. 
Because that's what Satan wants. That's what our flesh wants. We want to be driven by our desires from, from, from one flash of pleasure to another flash of, of pleasure without thinking, without applying wisdom. This is the appeal that leads to death. And many victims, she, she brings in a mighty throng. Basically, it doesn't matter how strong you think you are. It doesn't matter how much you think your own constitution can hold you up against sin. We looked at Samson a few weeks ago. There is no greater example than Samson. There is no stronger man who ever walked the face of the earth, and he is powerless in the lap of a woman. The mighty throng she laid low, and there is many of them. And her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Remember, her father's house is a house of life and house of wisdom. Her house is a house of death, a highway to hell, if you will. Keep my street going. Um, three people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> this is unavoidable. You think, like the fly in the Venus fry trap, well, I can just kind of dip my toe in. I can do this for a little while. I'll escape whenever I want. I'm in complete control. No, you're not. Because when you feed those urges, they grow. And just like the fire from last week, can a man hold fire next to his chest and not get burned? Once the curtains catch, your house made of straw is going up like that. So I'm looking forward to Lady Wisdom next week in chapter 8. But before we can appreciate Lady, Lady Wisdom, I want to lean in here in our last few moments. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. Her way is the wide way. That's the easy way. Most people who have ever walked the face of this earth walk that way, led by the desires of their flesh. This temptation is not just for men. It exists for women, too. You want to be loved. You want to be desired. You want to be, you, you want to, you want to be cared for. You want to be felt valuable. Every one of us wants to be validated. And like that woman, our flesh is not shy about offering suggestions of where to find it. Look at 1 Peter 2, 11. It'll be up on the screen. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Abstain, stay away from. But this is war. If you've got passions afflicting your, your, your soul, what do you have to do in war? You've got to fight. And if you are in Christ, beloved, you will not die in this battle. But you can save yourself a lot of harm. You save yourself of being shot stabbed, captured, tortured, tormented by the enemy because you are not fighting and abstaining from these sins. Let's take it um, a little bit further. This was Israel's downfall. Um, so here's where this language comes together. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16 is where all of this imagery God shows to his people. I, I wanted to kind of present this. Because if you are married in this room, or if you're a child who has seen your parents be divorced or someone else be divorced, there is angst when you read a story like this. Because this married woman goes after a married man. A, a, a marriage is, is divided and, and ruined here, and it should make us sad. But there is something even far more grievous going on. Ezekiel chapter 16. Um, I'm going to read a longer passage, but I want to see... I want you to see the picture painted here. Here's Israel's downfall. Ezekiel 16. If you don't know where that is, it's six books from Proverbs to the right. So you can flip to the right a few pages. So he speaks about 
this people who are covered in blood. They're, they're covered in their own sin. He gives them life. This language in verse 8, this is marriage covenantal language. When I passed by you, this is God speaking to a people as if a husband speaks to a wife. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. This is what Boaz did to Ruth. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you. God is saying, as your God, I made a covenant. I made an agreement to be your God. As your, your, your husband, you became mine. You became my wife. Then look how generous God is. This is what God does to his people. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. Everything that woman's trying to do, God does and more to his people. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and chain around your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Why does God go into such great detail? This is the people he brought out of slavery. This is the people he brought into a promised land. And this is to show them everything you have I gave you. And it's because I love you. I want you to be beautiful. I want you to put all the other nations to shame. Look at verse 14. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. I'm a good husband. I gave you everything you needed. You lacked for nothing. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty. And you played the whore because your renown and, your lav and lavished your whorings on the passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of the garments and made your, for yourself colorful shrines. This is um, adultery being synonymous with idolatry. This is, their, um, this is not literal here, but this is their allegiance and their union with these other gods. The like has never been nor shall ever be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I have given you and made for yourself images of men, and with them you played the whore. He goes on and on and on. You get the point. But look at the cause. Verse 30. How sick is your heart? Declares the Lord God. He knows the source because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every corner and making a lofty place in every square, yet you were not like a prostitute. Here's where it gets worse. Because you scorned payment. You, you played the whole role, yet didn't take anything in return. How bad are you, adulterous wife, he says to Israel, who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men gives gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers. That is a bad business model. Bribing them to come to you from every side with all your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore. And you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. I could go on and on and on, but you get the picture. This is the downfall of man. God has made us in his image. God has given us everything we need. He's given us clothes. He's given us water. He's given us a place to lay our head. And what do we want? Everything but God. We want to take everything God's given us and to go after other pleasures. God has given you everything. How do you respond to him? How often do we act like the faithless wife in the parable or in the story? Our husband who provides everything is gone as if God is really gone. 
Oh, he'll be back at some point. So I can indulge in everything I want. My life is all for, for me. Jesus says, I'm coming back. Amen. And how will he find you? When the husband returns, what will he find you doing? This is why the marriage metaphor is so important to the gospel. Look at Isaiah 54. Two books back to your left. Isaiah 54. Look at this picture. This is how God describes redemption in marital language. Isaiah 54, pick up in verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you remember no more. This is the key verse here. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Look at verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says our God. For a brief moment I deserted you, because you deserved it. That's my amplified version. But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. This is the love of the gospel. Not just we, we are kind of bad and we did a couple bad things. We've been an unfaithful wife. We've been an unfaithful bride. We want nothing to do with our husband. Our husband says, you know what? I'm going to let you deal with your sin for a time. But my love, I'm going to come for you. That's why we need a redeemer and a husband. Because we were unfaithful in the, the relationship that God placed us in. But we also need a kinsman redeemer, someone who is like us, someone who can stand in our place and buy us back. We are like Gomer, who goes after all these other men while her husband is at home, and God says, go buy your adulterous wife back, because that is what I'm doing to Israel, my people. We are a faithless bride. We are a faithless people, and that's why the picture of marriage as Christ in the church is so powerful, is so deep, Because it goes all the way back to the very nature of our heart. All the way back to the garden. Where Eve says, no, I would rather have the other guy. And every time we go after something that is not from the true and living God, we're saying, I'd rather have the other guy. I've created this idol in my heart. I've put all these other things before you. But one came as our redeemer to stand in a place to be our husband because we were not worthy to be a bride. So he had to cover us. He had to make us new. He had to make us beautiful. He had to dress us in white for that, for that blessed day. This is the love of God. He takes prostitutes and makes them a bride. He takes the unfaithful and makes them faithful by his faithfulness. This is the love of God. That he would send his son, not just to make you right in the courtroom, but to make you right in the home. But to bring you in and unite you to himself. Our desire to be loved is intrinsic to our nature. We all want to be loved. May not be adultery per se, what's in this this poem. But every one of us has something that just hurts because we feel lost, we feel distant, we feel incomplete. 
And even when we feel complete, even when we think we got what's going to make it happy, how long does it last? It's just like the night in that woman's house. This is why the message of love in the gospel is so appealing and it resonates in every age. Because this is how much God loves his people. God didn't come for those who think that they are good and do good things on their own. No, he came for the prostitute. He came for those who want nothing to do with him and he says, I know your heart can't follow me. So I'm going to change it. I'm going to make you born again. I'm going to send my spirit to breathe new life into you because I love you. Saints, if you are in Christ this morning, that is how much he loves you. He loved you enough to make you his bride. And to do what only he can do, make what is ugly beautiful. And as a remedy for our temptations, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And remind ourselves of this fact. Remind ourselves that if we are in Christ, yes, we will wander like this young, gullible dimwit. But it is him who redeems. It is him who stands in our place. It is him who brings us into his home and adorns us in in beauty. And I don't need another lover. I don't need to go somewhere else. I don't need to seek validation from some other temptation because the world is going to do it. Our flesh is going to do it. Come, you're so special. I've got everything laid out for you. It's drivel. It's worthless. And it can't last. But if we were reminded of the great love of God for his people, if we remind each other of this, if we walk as people in the light and not in the darkness and not walk on our own, how much, off, how much more will we be comforted? Will be, we be encouraged? And we don't have to wander to find love elsewhere. But if you are here this morning and you are wandering, and you're wondering if maybe this next thing will fulfill me, maybe this next romp will make it all better, it won't. It'll never satisfy, guaranteed. There's only one that satisfies. There's only one love that lasts. That love was willing to die to show you how great a mercy and grace and love a husband has for his bride. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time being together. We thank you for your word because sometimes it lifts us up and encourages us when we are broken. Sometimes it breaks us even further. Lord, forgive us our arrogance. Forgive us our pride in only seeking ourselves. Forgive us for living a life of, of pleasure and think we can stand before you one day because you grade on a curve. The standard is impeccable. The standard was met by the groom. Our maker, our redeemer, stood in our place. And if we are not covered by his blood, if his veil does not cover us because the veil was torn in the temple, we're hopeless. But because of him, we have all hope, all joy, all peace because of his love. What a wondrous love. In his name we pray, amen.